Heavenly Father, we need to hear from you. We're so different, and so many people will come here today, Lord. Young and old, some in a, in a sweet spot in life and rejoicing. Unbelievably grateful for, for your blessing. Others will, will kind of drag themselves here. They'll be so burdened, so tired, so close to the edge of hopelessness that they will come here uh, hoping to hear from you. And we all need to, whether we're in a, a sweet season or at the edge of, of losing our, our hope and our confidence. We all need to hear from you. So help us, bless us. Give us a humble heart, Lord, to hear your word. Make us quick to obey it. Help us shake off, Lord, habits that the world and the culture and sin try to impose. And help us walk in step with you, your grace, your love, your faithfulness. I pray that you would begin with me because I need it most. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. How are you? Pastoring is a, a strange kind of calling, and people ask pastors all kinds of strange questions. The most frequently, the most frequent question I'm asked, perhaps, that is strange is, uh, do I work more than one day a week? And, <laughs> and the answer is sometimes. Um, <laughs> a pastor friend of mine used to say, you work one day a week and it's a split shift. It's not a bad gig if you can get it. And, if you know anything about ministry, it's, it's not actually quite like that. I've been asked all kinds of questions. A man who had just trusted Christ asked me if I was still tempted by sin and seemed, I wish you wouldn't laugh quite so quickly, <laughs> seemed enormously relieved that I, when I told him that yes, I was. And another very practical, obvious question, that's not strange at all, is how do you choose what you're going to teach or preach on throughout the week? And if you've been in Crosspoint for a while, you know that's rather straightforward. What we tend to do is pick a book of the Bible and move through it. We'll begin that again next week in the book of James. I'd really encourage you, if you have not yet, to read the book of James in its entirety at one time. That's not daunting at all. That will take you about 15 minutes. You have the day off tomorrow. <laughs> if you don't have the day off tomorrow, if you're one of those heroes that actually labors on Labor Day, find some time today before you go back to work and read it straight through. But that begins next week. For the last few weeks, we've been all over the place. Last week, we literally went from Genesis through Revelation, tracing God's eternal purpose to save people. We discovered that His purpose has never changed. His purpose has always been redemption and salvation and forgiveness. The only thing that changed was His method. He began with Abraham and with Israel to draw people to the nation so that they would know Him. And now in the days of Jesus and His church, He does not call us to draw people, but He actually sends us out in the same way that Jesus was sent by the Father. Now we are sent to the world, not to save the world. We're just messengers, but we tell people about the only one who can save them. That was last week. This week's completely different. 
Instead of covering the entire Bible in a single sermon, we're really going to dive deeply into a single verse. And that, book, that verse is found in the book of Ephesians. It's printed on your outline, but you will need your Bibles this morning because I'm going to show you things across the book of Ephesians as we look at Ephesians 4.29. And if I'm being candid... I'm telling you that I'm still tempted and I still sin and I still get tired and there are things about me that I don't like and that God disapproves of and I need His grace to forgive me in. I have to tell you regarding this sermon, I'm preaching this today because I need it. I've taught you this before. We've looked at this passage several years ago. I looked again at this passage not to have something to preach to you, but to have something to minister to me. Ideally, that's the way it works every week. I go looking to hear from God. God teaches, corrects, encourages me, takes me behind the woodshed. (laughs) Happens all the time. And then I come and spill over what He's been pouring into me during the week. It's not perfect. It's very human. When, I get, when I'm involved, it's incredibly fallible, but that's how it works, and that's how it worked this week. And for good reason, because this verse, as you'll see in Ephesians 4.29, tells us how to use our words. And as a pastor and as a lifelong motor mouth, I really have trouble with words. It's kind of sobering stuff because the Bible says that when there are many words, sin is inevitable. When there are many words, sin abounds. And the man who controls, the woman who controls their lips, they're prudent. Did you get that? Where there are many words, sin is inevitable. Sin will always flourish. The more you speak, the more likely you are to blow it. And prudence and wisdom, Proverbs says, is found by learning to control your lips. And then Jesus comes along in the Gospel of Matthew and says that on the day of judgment, men will give an account for every careless word they speak. you have any idea how much that sobers me up? You're laughing, but it's laughable. It's a serious verse, though. Every careless word? Everything that was stupid, everything that was sarcastic, everything that was meant to hurt somebody else. Not through direct statements of evil and slander, but just maybe raising some interesting questions. I'm I'm not, and here's what we say. I'm not saying, I'm, I'm I'm just asking. I just wonder, I just think, have you ever started a marriage fight like this? I just think it's funny. No, you don't think it's funny. And all of us who live in a relationship with God and with other people are continually stumbling in our words. The passage we're looking at is found in Ephesians 4. And the book of Ephesians is a letter that Paul wrote, a church he dearly loved. It seems that he did not bring the message of Jesus to them originally. That probably belonged to an incredibly gifted and skilled couple who brought the gospel to Ephesus first, but whatever his role was, Paul certainly strengthened and established the church there. For once in his life, Paul wasn't chased out of town at one end of an angry mob. In Ephesus, for a time, he actually got to stay there. He pastored, if you will, the church for three years. 
Later, they will be blessed by the ministry of Timothy. They will be blessed also by the ministry of the Apostle John. Paul knows these people. He loves these people. He probably gave more of his life directly to the people in Ephesus than he did to anyone else. And maybe that's why the letter is so rich, even in comparison to the others. For the first three chapters, it's all doctrine and teaching. In the Greek language that Paul wrote it in, the first chapter is practically a single sentence. Half the chapter is a single sentence. And he just speaks about their blessings. He says that their salvation is so secure that it's as if they are already seated in the heavenly places in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul reminds them of, you can open your Bibles with me please, to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul reminds them of the richness of their salvation and just how good they have it. He says in Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's your security in Christ. That's the vertical relationship. You're not in heaven yet, but you may as well be from God's perspective. You are eternally saved, blessed, forgiven, and Paul has these wonderful prayers in the book of Ephesians. And the heart of the prayer is, I'm just praying that you'll be able to get your mind around this. God's love is so vast, so deep, so high, so wide, I'm praying that you're able to understand it, that you'll know how loved you are, because love is the one thing we never tire of. No one has ever been loved enough or ever tired of truly being loved. And Paul is explaining here that the love of God is eternal, and it's entirely by His grace, Ephesians 2.8, very famous passage, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So there's the gospel, there's the good news of Jesus. No one has ever been saved by being good enough. It's entirely by God's initiative. It is God's gift to you. And people often tell me in pastoral conversations, it's too easy. Yes, easy for you, because it was so costly to him. That's the point of the gospel. Not that it's easy on his side. It was enormously, enormously costly to him. It cost God his own life, the life of his son, Jesus Christ, bearing the sin of the world, living righteously as we never did, as we never wanted to. All of that Jesus takes to the cross, dies in our place, takes his life back in the resurrection so that he can, as promised, save anyone who trusts him. That's why Jesus said in the Gospel of John to his disciples, because I live, you will live also. It's substitution. It's not cooperate with God. It's not you meet God halfway, you do a little bit, and God does the rest. No, it is, if you look carefully in the verses we just read, it is the what? It is a gift of God. And gifts, by definition, are free to the recipient. See, that's the confusion. If I wanted to give you a Bible this morning, maybe you're our guest, and as a way of saying thank you, we would like to give you a very nice Bible to take home, and you were able to read the gospel, of, uh, the, the book of James for yourself. Let's say we did that, and if you need a Bible, by the way, I actually will be happy to give you one. It's not incredibly nice. It's uh, pretty ordinary. 
but you can read it, and it'll, it's God's Word. It'll change your life. But suppose I call you tomorrow and say, I heard you received one of our Bibles. Uh, listen, that cost the church $50. Do you think you could spare five? Would that be a gift? No, just a bargain. Just a bargain, just a deal. God doesn't bargain, God doesn't negotiate. He doesn't have cut rate sales on salvation. He pays the cost entirely because we cannot pay that cost ourselves. And that's what Paul is telling the Ephesians here. In Ephesians chapter 3, he tells them that they stand in a very unique place because they are Gentiles, they are former pagans, but this was God's intention all along to unite in one body called the local church, people from every walk of life, from every kind of sin and past and history and guilt and shame, God brings Himself glory by bringing people that are as different as we are. We're a much more diverse church than we were even five years ago. Last week I noticed we were having a conversation of four people and there were four nations represented in just the quartet of us. That's part of God's plan. To bring people who have no common interests, maybe have reason to historically to suspect each other of evil deeds, maybe who have hated each other ancestrally for generations. Now, Paul says to these pagans in the Roman Empire, it was always God's plan to tear down the wall of division and unite Jew and Gentile in one body, the body of Christ. And that's the first three chapters of Ephesians. And in the next three chapters, and I'm going to teach you a single verse, he says, now here's what we're going to do about all that. In other words, three chapters of identity, three chapters of behavior. Does that make sense? Smart parents and smart bosses appeal to people not on the basis of compliance alone, they appeal to people on the basis of their identity. Which is why my mom and dad trying to raise me, and it was a chore, I promise you, You've already heard all the struggles I'm still having. Imagine what I was like when I was eight. They would appeal to me like this. We're Christians. We don't do that. We're the Garner family. The men in our family don't speak to girls like that. It wasn't just don't. It was always on the basis of identity, of belonging of who I was, of the pleasure and the blessing I had to be in their family, to be in God's family. That's what Paul's doing here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, because he's in prison, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, I've told you for three chapters how blessed you are, how much God loves you, how much has changed, how free your salvation is. Now, he says, I want you to walk it out. I want you to have a response that shows that you appreciate all the sacrifices God has made. And the next three chapters, read the book for yourself if you don't believe me, are practical instructions of what it looks like to be forgiven, of the way forgiven people behave. And a common fault in churches is pastors like me teach the second half of the letter without making sure that people have experienced the blessings and the salvations of the first half of the letter. In other words, 
You're giving running advice to crippled people. Because you can't do anything in the second half of the letter without the grace of Christ. The same grace that saved you is the grace that's going to enable you to behave everything that Paul says is practical and needful in the things he addresses, like marriage and parenting and work. And the way we relate to one another. And in Ephesians 4.29, our passage, the way we speak to one another, the way we speak to people outside the church. Ephesians 4.29, it should be on your outline. I'd love you to read it with me. And read it, please, off the bulletin so we can all read the Bible, the same Bible translation, because the Bible was translated from ancient languages. And if we read four different translations, it will sound like the United Nations without the benefit of translators. Read this with me. This is how saved people, this is how redeemed people, this is how blessed people who might as well already be in heaven because their salvation is so secure. This is what we do with our words. Ephesians 4.29. Would you read it with me? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Once more. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Here's how Christians should speak. Here's how Christians should speak to others. The first thing you're told is a don't. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. What does that mean? It means that a person who has been saved by Christ is walking with Jesus, understands his salvation, knows how much God loves him. The first thing a Christian does is this. We don't harm people in any way by the way we talk to them. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That word corrupting, if you want to make a note of it, is very precisely translated. Notice it doesn't say corrupt. In other words, it's not just speech that is foul or ugly. It is speech that is so foul and so ugly that it has a damaging effect on the people who listen to it. In the words of the Greek, in the world of the Greek New Testament, the specific word that Paul chose talks about things like rotting fish or rotting fruit. In other words, if I can follow his word picture, if garbage comes out of your mouth, it'll make other people dirty. That's the problem. That's why Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And he has likely the Old Testament in mind when he's writing this, Listen to the Proverbs 12:18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. You ever felt that? There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. In other words, Proverbs says talking to some people is like getting run through with a sword. Have you felt it? See if we can remember this little American saying. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but 
Is that true? Americans have a lot of great sayings. That's one of the dumb ones. <laughs> Words will absolutely hurt you. You know, I can still remember things that people I trusted and loved when I was a kid said to me that hurt. I'm over it. I've dealt with it, but I still remember. I remember everything about it. I remember the expression on their face. I remember what I did or the mood they were in to cause that. I've got a tape of football coaches running through my mind. Football coaches are fairly famous for not particularly caring about your feelings. And on my best day, I was one of the worst human beings that ever lived to one coach. I still remember. And now as a grown man, I can understand. I can look back and see all the signs of trouble and evil in his own life. I can understand why he acted that way. I now know as a grown man, as a Christian, that it wasn't even his fault that he talked like that to kids. But I still remember. Because there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. A couple weeks ago, I spoke to a young man and just said something normal, decent, intended to be kind to him. He broke down in tears. And the disproportionate reaction made me realize that because of his shattered family life, it's likely that nobody, probably never a man my age, had ever spoken to him like that. See, this is the power of words. Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I can't even tell you the most illustrative stories. But I've been called in a couple times into living rooms and scenes on the street where the right words spoken by someone else give someone a reason to keep on living. The tongue of the wives brings, gives healing. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.29 to people who know Christ, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Listen to Proverbs 15 verse 4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. That's poetry. In other words, a tongue that is self-controlled and kind, that's the idea of gentleness that it is under the speaker's control, that he will only use it for good. It's like a tree of life. It's something that is living, that continually gives life to other people. But perverseness, the Proverbs say, perverseness in speech, perverseness in the tongue, breaks the spirit. In other words, they've got it exactly wrong. You fall down in the street, break your leg, the orthopedic surgeon can take care of that. A broken spirit needs the grace of God to heal. All kinds of things can happen to your body. People recover from extraordinary trauma, from tremendous accidents, but people can be haunted for life unless they experience the grace and the healing of Jesus. They can be haunted for life simply by what others say to them. Our saying has it backwards. 
Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can really harm me. Words can really do harm, which is why it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. How are you doing with that? We're just looking at one verse. I'm almost done, believe it or not. Isn't that encouraging all this build up just for one verse and we're almost done? But let me tell you how to get the benefit out of it. Don't just sit there and say, oh, that's a good idea. Measure yourself by how you're told to live if you're a Christian. If you don't know Christ, your only need, the only thing I can offer you this morning is the best thing anyone can offer you. I can offer you Jesus. Not speech therapy. He'll take care of that as He saves you and teaches you, as I'm trying to do, just repeating His words on to you. But it all begins with your salvation. If you don't know Christ, that is your first and next move. That's the best and the only thing you can do. This actually doesn't even apply yet until you have the salvation of your soul. Until Jesus has come in, taken charge of your life, you've turned away from your sin, entrusted yourself to Him for salvation, then He'll save you, give you His Spirit, give you a new heart, and all of this becomes possible. But I'm here to tell you, it's possible, but it's not always done speaking only for myself. Let no corrupting talk come out of my mouth. Sarcasm is my third language. I speak Spanish, English, and sarcasm. And I've measured myself by this verse and thought as the father of two young men, I've replayed and I need to talk to them again to make sure I have their forgiveness, make sure that we're, we're okay. I can remember speaking to these two wonderful young men rashly, impatiently, harshly. I've seen the disproportionate reaction from them, which indicates that they weren't expecting that and they didn't deserve it. Certainly not coming from me. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Don't do anyone any harm in anything that you say. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Here's the do. That was the don't. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. The only speech Christians are allowed is speech that builds people up. Now think with me for just a moment. Does that mean we can never call sin, sin? We can never tell someone they're wrong? I'm asking, you're answering. No. This same letter says, speak, to, speak the truth in love. Paul speaks about the cunning and the evil plans of people who don't know God, who would draw people away from Him. Paul is never less than truthful. He is always truthful. But Christian truth is always accompanied by love. In other words, our speech can never harm someone, but it may hurt them because correction is hurtful. Have you noticed? A few years ago, I took some preaching classes. And that's a terrible thing to do. Because after you've done it for a while, you've got your habits and you preach and submit manuscripts to an actual expert and he bleeds all over the page. Tells you all that you did wrong. 
The things you thought you did wrong as a preacher, are you hoping he wouldn't notice? He does. And he says things like this, I thought it lacked tension. It's a polite way of saying I thought it was boring. <laughs> Any kind of correction is painful, but it's not harmful if it's correction. Let no corrupting speech, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. In other words, when Christians speak, we speak to build people up instead of tearing them down. That's the goal. That the effect of every word and every conversation will always be to improve the other person, to help them down the road, to bring them closer to God, to heal their hurts, to encourage them in their difficulties, to, yes, correct them from their wrong way. And that's why this building up is, has some qualifications, has some specifics. Read it with me again. It's just one verse. You guys are doing great. You sound amazing. The Bible says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Don't do it. Got it. Don't harm people in the way I speak. Instead, the way I speak should only be good for building those people up. And here's one of the explanations of what it means to build someone up. It says, only such as is good for building up as what? Fits the occasion. Now the Greek, because this was written in Greek, not English, is really interesting. That particular phrase can mean one of two things. It can mean the need of the moment or the need of the person, which is intended, I think, both. In other words, when we speak to build someone up instead of tearing them down, the first thing we do is we pay attention to make sure that we are timely in our speech. We make sure that our words are timely. I'll give you a for instance. When we were missionaries in Mexico, we'd had our our first son, I don't think, in fact, I'm quite sure, because of one of the things that was stolen from us, our second son had not yet been born there in Mexico. We just had the one cute little bundle of fat who loved a blue and white and red little whoopee blanket from Old Navy. Old Navy, as far as I know, has not yet reached Mexico. It certainly had not reached Mexico when we lived there. Which is what made it so awful when somebody stole my Chevy pickup. I didn't care so much about the truck. I did a little bit, but I was really concerned when it dawned on me that the car seat with the Wobie was inside the truck. Because we've got insurance for the truck. There's nothing I can do, at least for days, to replace the blanket. And this is one of the children that needs that blanket to sleep. And if he can't sleep, guess what? Nobody sleeps. And I don't know if you've ever had a car stolen from you. It's a disorienting experience because you walk out to the spot where you left it and do that. And then you walk the entire city block thinking that you're confused and you don't remember where you parked this giant truck. 
And it dawned on me, it happened to me, they've taken the truck, and what's inside the truck? Did I leave any? Oh no, the blanket. And I'm standing there in the middle of the street when a Christian pulls up, someone I know. And they roll the window down and they can see that I look like a mule that's been hit with a two-by-four in the forehead. That's the, roughly the facial expression, if you can imagine. And this person says, what's wrong? You look upset. I said, yeah, my, my truck just got stolen. He said, well, brother, God's still on the throne, and pulled off. <laughs> well, yeah. I didn't think my stolen pickup was going to dethrone God. I wasn't standing in the middle of the street shouting, there is no God. I'm just coming to grips with crime. Just need a minute. They thought it was time for a theology lesson of the eternality and the sovereignty, the kingship of God. Now, here's the thing. Were they right? Of course. Were they timely? Not at all. A normal human response would have been, that's terrible. Do you need a ride? <laughs> that would have been great. Didn't get it. Had to call somebody else. When you first restrain yourself from harming someone from your speech, that's the first part. Then you're positive and you focus on building them up by making sure, first of all, that your words are timely, and this is the other dimension in that phrase, Christians using their speech well, speaking as Jesus would in their place, we make sure to focus on what they need. In other words, it's the right time and it's for their need, not our situation. People who speak as Jesus spoke, speak people who are walking worthy, who are living up to this amazing gift that they've been given that is so magnificent that it's as if they were already in heaven. They're not, but it's that sure, it's that much of a lock. They focus on what the other person needs, and every fight you've had probably has one common characteristic. If you're fighting verbally with someone, nobody's listening, both people or all three or however many you got in the scrap with, they're all talking. And people don't listen, they wait their turn. And they listen not to understand and help the other person, they listen to have something to argue with, they listen for something that they can seize on to put the other person in their place. Has it happened to you? happens to me. I already told you, where there are many words, sin is not absent. Sin is inevitable when you keep speaking. I talk a lot, consequently, I sin a lot. And when I'm, when I'm arguing, I'm not thinking about the other person. Guess who I'm thinking about? Me. My rights. My knowledge. I'm listening and speaking, not to help them, but to improve my own position. And that's the opposite 
of what Paul has in mind. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. In other words, the speech of Christians reminds people of Christ because it gives grace to the people listening to them. What does that mean? It means that when we have spoken as Christians, even if we're not speaking of Christ, even if we're speaking of our work, of our family, of our feelings, of our needs, of our disagreements, someone who is speaking in those moments as a Christian, this is our intention. We treat people better than they deserve and we leave them better than they were. That's what it means to give people grace. Measure yourself by this. Do people routinely leave their exchanges with you in a better position than they were before they started talking to you? Do people routinely, none of us do this perfectly, but as a matter of habit, as their ordinary experience, do they leave the conversation or 21st century, the text messaging they do with you, thinking to themselves that they've been encouraged that they've been helped, that they are cared about, dare I say it, that they are loved. Paul said that speech from Christians gives grace to those who hear. What is grace? Grace is blessing that they don't deserve. Those three chapters I walked you to before we came to the practicality of Ephesians 4.29, those first three chapters of doctrine and truth, all they're exalting is the grace and the goodness of Jesus. Three solid chapters of Paul saying, do you understand how blessed you are? Do you understand how much you should be thanking God with me? Do you understand all that He has already done for you? Do you understand that His purpose in saving you extended into eternity past? This is not a, oh, by the way, Johnny-come-lately emergency plan situation on the part of God. He wanted to do this forever. He wanted to save you. He has saved you now. This is how blessed you are. Now go live like it. It's three solid chapters of teaching them grace and love and truth so that they can then take what they've received from God and give it to others. And the reason I looked for this passage in desperation and frankly in physical exhaustion is because it became apparent to me because of all the things I'm doing in my life and how much I'm depending on good old me instead of Jesus that my speech wasn't very gracious. that at least some people in my life were hearing me and being reminded of the man I was before Christ rather than the gracious Christ who saved me. That's why it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only, there's your filter, only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. In other words, church, here's the standard. Christians should speak only to build people up, never to bring them down. 
you realize how harsh and ugly the world has become? That coarseness, vulgarity, and insults are, that's just, that's everyday speech now. From the President of the United States on down, it's vulgarity, harshness, insults, demands, threats, all the way down. Obscenities are routinely printed on t-shirts and bumper stickers now. Two or three years ago, they were putting a symbol or a cartoon over one of the letters. Hide it just a little bit for the sake of the four-year-old. Not anymore. Vulgarity, lies, harshness, accusations, sarcasm, slander, character assassination, insinuation, rumor, gossip, all of those things, that's all corrupting speech. It doesn't have to be violent. It doesn't have to be obscene. It just has to harm the other person. As a Christian, you're forbidden that kind of language. It belongs to the old life and to the old man. That's part of your old nature. Here's the standard now. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give, say that word with me, that it may give what? Grace, Grace to those who hear. So here's an invitation for the next week. Remember, you are a Christian. If you are. And if you're not, please trust Christ today. That's my invitation to you. If you have come here without the security of your salvation and you don't know Jesus and you've listened to all this, you'll be tempted to take it as some kind of Dr. Phil, feel good, help you kind of talk. And it'll do you no good whatsoever. Because you'll be, perhaps, if everything worked for you, you'll be momentarily motivated to do a little bit better, but until Christ comes in and changes you from the inside out, you will discover that that change will never last for long. And wherever you go, there you will be. Same old you. So if you don't know Jesus, I'm going to pray in about one minute. My specific invitation to you is to turn to Christ and say, Jesus, the way I speak reveals to me that I don't know you. And this man, along with all his confessions, said that one day I will be judged along with him for every careless word I've ever spoken. I need a Savior. I need forgiveness. Please save me. That's your first, best, and only move if you don't know Christ. But if you do, you've got your marching orders, Christian. You've got to shine in this dark world. You've got to be the kind one in a world that is cruel. You sometimes will be loving by being the quiet one in a world that is loud. You will be the one who doesn't pound the table and demand your rights, but seeks to yield to the other in grace, not because it's right or fair to you, but because it helps them. That's what it means to give grace to those who are listening to you. We had kids and all, I, I don't know, about 700 people here last weekend. Some of them are too little to understand anything I'm talking about. But if only, if only the 600 or so that were in this room, who were old enough to be in this room, if only we would take this seriously, you'd change your family. Men, your wives would have no idea what happened to you. They'd be thrilled, but shocked. 
Wives, if you've become critical and you quietly snipe away and you can see that it's wearing him down and you're kind of into it because he's earned it, that's not Christ in your home. Students, young people, I walk through high school crowds on a fairly regular basis going to games, doing various things to see and support the students. I expect to hear obscenity all the way through every five or ten seconds. The most vulgar of words has now become punctuation. That has an effect on you. I went to secular high schools myself. I understand as a student how that rubs off on you. You start controlling your lips. You start getting quiet. You stop being demanding and sarcastic. You start seeking the good of the other person in every conversation you have. You'll bring the light of God into your campus. Make all the difference in the world. So let's make sure that we are the kind of people who speak to build people up, never to bring them down. Let's pray. I'll close where I started. Friend, neighbor, do you know Christ? Are you certain of your salvation? If not, I've tried to explain the good news to you. You cannot save yourself. Only Jesus can do that. That's why he died and rose again in your place. Please call out to him in prayer and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. Just tell him. If he's turned your heart around from yourself and from your sin, just tell him. Tell him what he's shown you. Ask him to save you. He will. He promised to do so. And if you do, please take the card that's in your bulletin. Give us your name. Check the box that lets us know of your decision. Or if you haven't yet committed to Christ, you have questions, you're interested but not quite there, please let us know. That won't make anything magic or official. I'm not talking to you about ritual or religion. I'm talking to you about you moving your trust from yourself to Jesus. Recognizing yourself guilty under God's judgment. Your conscience tells you it's true. You may have heard verses in the Bible today that woke you up as they continued to do to me, and you say to yourself, my goodness, I'm in trouble. I need Jesus to save me. That's my invitation to you. You would call out to him in prayer. And let us know that you have done so, so that we may pray for you and teach you further before you leave. If you're serious, if you're committed, that you would let us know. And Christian, especially in this early service, the great majority of people that come to this service, I believe, already know the Lord, walked with Him for years. Does it show up in your speech? If not, can you talk to Him about it? Make this verse your mission. Father, your word has, has helped me at least. I pray that it has done the same for others. Let no corrupting talk, Lord, come out of our mouths. But may we this week, until we meet again, speak only the words that will help build other people up. Let us choose the words as fits the occasion, the timing, their specific need. 
And Lord, may we be those who give people what they need so that they may receive from you through us grace, that they may be built up and be reminded by the way they were talked to by ordinary people like us what a great Savior Jesus is. May our loving, our giving, our serving, and this week especially, our speaking all represent you well. We ask this in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, amen. God bless you.